Hi, and welcome to episode 184 of the Untethered Podcast. It's your host, Hallie Balkin. And today we're going to dive into a quick episode on the fact that not all ties, whether they're tongue, lip, buckle, not all ties need to be released. So let's dive in. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. All right. So welcome to this episode. Um, I have noticed lately that quite a few conversations just seem to have been popping up about tie releases and when it's necessary and when it's not. And so I really wanted to just take a quick episode and dive into this because no, not all tethered tissues need to be released. Now, Quick disclaimer, okay, is that this is not in the scope of an SLP, a speech language pathologist, an occupational therapist, um, a registered dental hygienist, right? This is typically only in the scope in terms of determining if a release is needed and the details regarding the release is in scope for the release provider, which is typically a dentist, a um, orofacial maxillary uh, surgeon, um, an ENT, right? So those providers typically determine whether or not a release is needed, but depending on where you're located, you may be able to diagnose a, a tongue tie or a lip tie or buckle ties. Okay. Cheek ties. So know where you live, know what the rules are, where you live, you know, for example, where I exist, um, and where I'm licensed currently, like in Maryland and Florida, for example, I can diagnose. I have a specialized level of training. Not everybody does. So it really depends, again, on where you live, what your specialty training is, and so on and so forth as to one, whether or not you can diagnose, and then you know who is the available provider in your area to determine if a release is needed. And these are typically the providers that we would be referring to for a consultation um, as deemed necessary. But let's talk about releases and you know when they may not be necessary or why they may not always be necessary. First of all, we have to look at function. And if you've listened to the podcast, this is definitely something you've heard me preach in the past. Function, function, function. Function drives, drives everything, right? Function is talking about, what do I mean by that? Function means, is it impacting sleep, breathing? you know, airway? Is it impacting feeding? Is it impacting speech? All right. And there's been a lot of interesting research depending on um, what you read and how you break it all down that sometimes is for or against a release for any one of these areas. But there's also research come, that's come out and that's been supportive of 
releases for patients, certain patients who have speech sound disorders, who have feeding um, delays or disorders, who have uh, really more disordered feeding usually, um, who have sleep disordered breathing, right? There is a growing body of articles and courses and people sharing results from cases that cases that they've worked on. And we need to remember that research is about 17 years behind. So what often gets published and used in clinical decision-making, if we're just solely basing this on research, that research that got published, published last year, right? We're kind of like working at, they say, we work about 17 years behind. So we have to look at the entire evidence-based practice triangle. We have to consider clinical experience. What is working for our patients, right? While still making sure that anything that we are doing is not causing harm, it's beneficial to the patient and so on and so forth, right? So how do we determine, right? Who may be good, who we need to send for a release consult and who we don't think needs a release consult. Because again, as an SLP, I, even though I'm certified in oral myology, I cannot say, yes, this patient needs a release. No, this patient doesn't. Now, do we have conversations behind the scenes with some of our release providers who say, hey, like, what do you think? And I'm like, hey, this is your scope. What I can share though is, you know what? I think it's impacting function. And I think that if we did have it, it would, it, you know, we'd be able to do X, Y, and Z in therapy and they would greatly benefit from that release, right? So I'm not saying yes, they need the release, but I'm saying this is what I feel is happening as a result of that tethered oral tissue. And this is what I think may, may happen if we don't have that restriction in place, right? Um, of course, I don't have a magic ball. So it's not, so I never promise anything to a patient because we never actually know. And there's a lot of factors and variables that play into this. Um, but I do know from working with patients and my team working with patients and training other therapists and them working with patients, we do know what we are seeing. We do know that releases can be very beneficial if done right. And if the therapy before and after is supportive of the, that patient's needs, not just like a cookie cutter approach. Um, but also we have to look at various things. Okay. So we're going to dive in a little bit into what some of those things are. So for example, right. I, I mentioned it comes down to function. Okay. Not solely appearance. We can't just take a picture and go, oh my gosh, that kid is so tongue tied. Now, when you do this for a while, you can look at a tongue and be like, oh, wow. Like that's a heart-shaped tongue. Like that tongue is really just stuck to the floor of the mouth. They can't elevate it at all. The sides barely elevate. The tip is completely pinned to the floor of the mouth and go, hmm, I wonder like how this, this person, if it impacts their speech, if it impacts their sleep, if it impacts, you know, their, because of their ability to breathe, if it impacts their ability to chew and swallow their food. And so most likely, yes. Now, <laughs> Yes, because obviously they can't do what they typically would need to do, which is elevate that tongue for a lot of these activities. And they just can't possibly do that if it's physically tethered to the floor and it can't elevate at all. Some people learn to compensate and some people compensate very, very well. And so it also just comes down to, do you want to live a life of compensation where it can snowball over time and potentially lead to other issues? Like we see, um, temporomandibular joint dysfunction, we see migraines, we see obstructive sleep apnea, we see a lot of things snowball into adulthood that greatly impacts our overall health. 
can we say that every tongue tie is going to do that? No, we can never say anything definitively, but can we say that we see a lot of adults who have tongue ties? Obviously it was there at birth, um, who have developed into adults with these issues. Yeah. We see that every day in our practice. So again, it comes down to not just how it looks, but how is it impacting function? And sometimes this is subjective. Sometimes the patient may not recognize how much it's impacting their function because they've never known anything else. This is their daily normal. We've had, I've had grown men cry when they had an evaluation. They said, you are the 12th person that I have been to for my issues. I basically decided to go out and figure out who else I could see because nobody believes me. People think I make this up. And, and this individual had an orofacial myofunctional disorder, obstructive sleep apnea that was missed. Um, you know, tethered oral tissues, right? And so after treatment, and this patient did proceed with a tongue tie release and myofunctional therapy, you know, they came back again in tears. You know, at first it was tears because it's like, wow, it's someone who finally is listening to me and not just basing it on like what one article says online or in a research journal, but actually like listening to me as a patient, hearing what my symptoms are, um, kind of piecing the pieces of the puzzle together to figure out how we can best proceed in this individual's case, uh, what's needed, what may be the first line of defense versus the last, right? And, and from there, right, we proceeded. And then at the end, they were in tears again because they're like, I didn't, I, I knew that I couldn't function, but I never knew how much I was missing. And it gives me chills because there's so many people walking around, both children and adults who have no idea what normal sleep feels like, what restorative sleep feels like. They have no idea what it feels like to nasal breathe most of the time, right? Outside of eating and speaking. They have no idea what it feels like to have a clear like Peyton Nares to have a clear nose, open nostrils, um, without enlarged turbinates or a deviated septum. They, I mean, I even had surgery six months ago, actually six months ago tomorrow, um, from the date that I'm recording this and the ability to breathe out of both sides of my nose was not something I, I paid attention because I'm in this space, but it's not something I realized how challenging breathing was for me and how much more energy I was expending until after I had my septum fixed and my, um, I had my turbinates reduced and nasal swell bodies reduced as well. And I tell you like now when I sleep eight hours, I actually wake up feeling refreshed. I feel like, wow, like I can take on the day I'm ready to go versus before I would wake up like dragging. It was almost like, why do I even bother sleeping? I feel exhausted when I wake up because based on my sleep study, I was getting fragmented sleep. I was getting basically anytime I went into REM in the, at least the first half of the night, REM sleep, my body just jolted me out of it. And so I was never getting that, that rapid eye movement sleep. That's also very restorative. Um, I wasn't getting that. So it didn't matter if I slept four hours, eight hours, five hours, seven hours, whatever. It was basically all the same. Um, and it was as if I wasn't sleeping much. So I go back to function. Function is what is important. Function is all the things that I've mentioned so far. If we cannot function in our day, we can't eat, we can't focus, we can't um, breathe properly, we can't sleep well, we can't, maybe it's impairing our speech and so it's impairing our communication ability. Um, a lot of kids get bullied and made fun of because of the way they speak, especially past a certain age. Kids are mean these days. I hate to say it, but it's true. And all it takes is one 
one child making fun of another child that sometimes just sends these, sends some of our kids into not wanting to speak at all and just kind of keeping more to themselves or their small friend groups because they're afraid of what others are going to think when they speak or they're embarrassed to say something and have somebody not understand them past a certain age, right? And I'm talking more about like kindergarten upward. So I want to focus on a couple things, right? One, again, how to, there's a couple rules of thumb that I use in determining if we should refer out for a release consult. Okay. So number one, obviously an initial assessment is always required. Um, under the age of four, we've talked about how that's a sensory oral motor feeding evaluation with somebody who has training in TOTS and Mayo, um, like in the Feed the Peds course, but then you know, we're also focusing on now four plus, like what about the kids who are over the age of four through adulthood? That is an orofacial myofunctional disorder. Now they may need other evals too. They may need speech to be addressed. Um, they may need more of a feeding eval beyond just the myo eval. That's fine. But for all intents and purposes, let's focus on getting everybody started with a baseline eval. We need to know where you're starting. We need baseline. Okay. Um, pictures are great. Videos are great. We need to know what that person looks like, how they're functioning, how function is impacted. If we don't know that from the get-go, how, how do we create a treatment plan? And what do we know? How do we know what we're working towards, right? So that's absolutely number one. Um, with that, we also can visualize or sometimes palpate or determine, right? If this person is carrying tension in surrounding muscles, sometimes our tongue may appear more restricted than it is uh, for one of two very common reasons that I find. One, the palate is too small and the tongue can't actually get into the palate. And so it's a tongue space issue. Um, we just don't have enough room for the tongue and the palate. The tongue's not too big for them. The tongue is not too big, okay? The palate is too small. The mouth is too small for the tongue. It's not that the tongue is too big. Macroglossia, is rare. Okay. That is a rare occurrence. It's that the tongue is too big for its cage. Um, like, um, Dr. Liao talks about, you know, six foot tiger stuck in a three foot cage. Great book, by the way. So that's, that's one part of the equation here. The other part is some, we often carry tension in the surrounding muscles around the frenulum and around that little string under the tongue. Um, and even throughout our face, and our neck and our shoulders and our entire body, our core on down, on down to our toes. When we carry tension in one area and we start to compensate, that impacts how other areas function. There's like this trickle down effect and or a snowball effect or whatever you want to call it. And so over time, our compensations, we may be compensating well, but over time that may also start to break down. So we don't want to dismiss a patient because they're compensating well, but we look at, okay, if we start myofunctional therapy with them or facial myofunctional therapy, right? We start that and maybe they need body work. We refer them out to um, an osteopath or craniosacral therapist or chiro or somebody who knows how to work with our patients and they can address the full body impact, right? We work on breathing. We work on all these different things. Do we find that the tongue actually gains more function and that tethered tissue doesn't appear to be impacting function as much because we've we've released tension and we're working on training the tongue on how to actually do its job. Like, is it possible that we can avoid a release in that case? 
yeah, that does happen. We, and especially in cases where it's like borderline, we're like, Mm, it's kind of borderline in diagnosing this as like a tongue tie, for example. Um, let's do some therapy and see where we get, right? And in a lot of these cases, especially in kids who are like over the age of like five or so, usually, and if, assuming also that they have intact cognitive abilities, like they're typically developing everything, you know, they can follow directions um, really well, they are compliant in the sessions, they do their homework. Usually we can ch see changes in a matter of like, three to four sessions over like three to four weeks. Okay. And that can help us determine if we're headed to a release provider or not. I don't love to refer to a release provider immediately because we don't have enough information yet. Right. It, there may be a rare case where we do, but that's going to be a rare case. And that's going to be based on specific factors regarding, you know, related to the patient. And I'm talking about older kids and adults. All right. So uh, or even not older kids, but like traditional myo age, like four, four on up. Let's, let's just stick with that number, um, four years of age on up. So if we can see changes that quickly, typically determining if we even need that release consult and the patient's doing some body work if needed and, you know, their homework and they're really compliant, um, we may be able to avoid the release. So it doesn't make sense to send people to send patients out on a wild goose chase to go provider to provider to determine if we need a release when we don't even know yet, like, is this tongue tie going to change um, in regards to how it's impacting function once therapy gets started, right? So start therapy first is, is the message here. Um, because again, as I mentioned before, we may be carrying tension, right? Uh, also, we may not know because maybe we need some expansion. Maybe we need to expand first and see if um, addressing, you know, those compensations and tension and therapy and teaching the tongue how to do its job and giving it more space to exist in the palate through uh, palatal expansion. Maybe that's the first line referral is to a expansion provider because we need to determine if there's enough, if giving more space for the tongue, does that help change the appearance uh, and the impact on the function, right? So there's all these things that have to be taken into consideration, which is why I say not all ties need to be released. But if you've done your due diligence, right, you've done your eval, you've gotten started in therapy, the referrals have been made, the patient's really compliant, you know, all these things that you're checking all these boxes and you're like, yeah, that tongue is not really changing much. Like, it's not that the surrounding oral muscles are compensating in a way that we can address, you know, sometimes we have, we have to proceed with a release if that's what the provider, um, the release provider agrees with, because we need, are working to gain function, right? And we have seen firsthand how, I know I'm going to get people who are like, oh, she said it, how speech drastically improves following a tongue tie release. Yes, it's true. Um, like those kids sometimes who are stuck in therapy for years and years on end working on their articulation. Yep. Sometimes they have a release. They do Mayo. We touch up a few sounds and they're out the door in six months, 12 months max and done with speech, no longer needing speech. Like what? Tell me it doesn't work, but they had been in 12 years of speech therapy prior to coming to us. Hmm. It's kind of hard to argue that the anatomy wasn't impairing their ability to improve their speech sounds when we see cases like this and we see it repeatedly time and time and time again. Okay. Um, so can some individuals who have like a tongue tie all the way to the tip, that's like nailed down to the floor of their mouth, uh, speak clearly and 
she, sure. Yeah, they can. It's going to take a lot more energy. They're going to compensate. Okay. Um, they're going to really struggle with certain sounds. And even if they compensate well, again, it snowballs over time, but that, that shouldn't be a determining factor one way or the other. We don't typically send a kid for a tongue tie release just because there's speech issues. Um, that may be why they came to us initially, but we often find that feeding is impacted or sleep is impacted. And those are two big drivers, both for kids and adults. Okay. Um, because we see feeding issues from infancy with nursing and taking a bottle or transitioning to a bottle or trans transitioning to solids. Right. Um, we see all kinds of negative responses, aversions develop, limited food repertoire, determinate, you know, they realize it's hard to choose certain things and swallow certain things when they get to solid foods. And so they limit what they eat or they only eat what they feel safe eating because they eat what they can manage. So it's something, and then this continues into adulthood. There's a lot of picky adults out there. Um, I know that Baxter had done a study where they saw an 84% improvement in children with feeding issues post tongue tie release. If it was impairing their function before and they had the therapies needed and the tongue tie release, 84% of them, their feeding issues improved. Like that's, that's a big number. That is a big number that we should not be ignoring. As far as sleep goes, right? We know that children who grind their teeth, they snore or really any audible noise at night, this is a sign of sleep disorder breathing. And so we need to prep them properly so that we don't, we don't want to just release a tongue or it can fall back in the airway. Um, if it's not prepped before a release, right? We need to do the therapy. It's really important. That's why you hear me preach pre-op post-op both are equally as important as the other. Um, but we need to train that tongue to rest in the palate, to exist in the palate when not eating or speaking, right? Nasal breathing, lips are closed. Um, Sleep disorder breathing we see, and I talked about this in a recent episode, we see kids who are restless sleepers, maybe they wet the bed, they, we see failure to thrive in some of these kids and failure, you know, and struggle to gain weight, we see growth issues, we also see ADD, ADHD issues, and um, five-year-olds on ADHD meds and antidepressants at five, like, without ever having a sleep study breaks my heart. All right. So, you know, we may see inflammation of, um, tissues in the airway, adenoids and tonsils are typically the ones that are, you know, discussed all kinds of things could be going on. Right. And so we have to be looking at sleep because this, the sleep and the airway component of it, that in and of itself, even if there are no obvious feeding or, and I get this question a lot, well, my child sleeps with their mouth open. Should I still have an evaluation? Yes. We want to determine if there's a functional impact that is, you know, that a professional might recognize that maybe you're not seeing firsthand in your child yet, uh, but maybe things that you don't realize are related will be uncovered in the evaluation. That happens a lot. We get a lot of families who say to us, oh, like they're them needing, um, them needing like extra time on tests or them having a struggle to, you know, my child struggling to focus in school or, you know, needing tonsils or adenoids removed or, you know, mouth breathing. These things are all related. Yeah. Bedwetting. That's a big one. Um, a lot of like, fre like frequently waking, you know, outside of like a child who is still feeding at night, you know, once you're beyond that age. I hear pediatricians say all the time, like, oh, it's normal for a child to wet the bed to like eight or nine years of age. No, it's not. It is absolutely not. 
nighttime training might be, and I'm not a potty trainer, okay, but I've potty trained two kids of my own. <laughs> nighttime potty training might be a little bit more challenging initially, but you generally, in a child who doesn't have sleep issues, who isn't losing control of their bladder, they should typically be potty trained at night, not too long after they're potty trained during the day. Sometimes kids potty train, you know, at the same time for, you know, both nighttime and daytime. Um, again, I'm not a potty training expert, but I can tell you that it's not okay for a child to still be bedwetting at eight or nine. This is an airway issue. We should be looking into sleep. So yes, if you see your child with an open mouth posture, that is enough reason to have an orofacial myofunctional sort, um, an orofacial myofunctional evaluation done, especially over the age of four. If they're under the age of four, you're going to want to call an SLP or an OT trained in um, pediatric feeding, sensory oral motor feeding that also has training with myofunctional therapy and tethered tissues, tongue ties tots, et cetera. Okay. Um, so hopefully that helps to kind of clear this conversation up a bit, because again, no, not every tie needs to be released. And just because your child presents with some of these symptoms doesn't mean they have a tie. And if they do have a tie, it doesn't mean it needs to be released. Maybe they just need some, some behavioral therapy. When I say behavioral, I don't mean, I mean like the kind of in intervention that we do where we're actually working with the anatomy, we're working with the, the orofacial structures, we're teaching them where they should exist in the mouth, we're teaching them how to nasal breathe, right? Because our goals when we are coming from a myo standpoint uh, is it's tongue up, lips closed, nasal, nasal breathing, and our teeth should be resting slightly apart, not together, okay? And so if we can accomplish that 100% of the time that we're not speaking, or eating, that's going to drastically improve a child's overall health, an adult too. Um, so we need to, yes. Yeah, so it's absolutely worth it to have an eval if mouth breathing or open mouth posture is recognized. Um, so yeah, hopefully that helps to clear things up. I'd love to know if you have any questions regarding this topic, but nope, not all ties need to be released. It all comes down to function and what can we, what do we need to do to get this child or adult to function optimally, right? Without all these compensations. Um, and then lastly, the thing that we need to consider are the patient's goals, whether that's the, the child's caregiver or the adult themselves. Some adults come and say, you know what? I don't want to do this whole treatment plan thing. I just don't want it to get worse. Can you help me prevent it from getting worse? Or can you help teach me what to do based on my current anatomy? right? Understanding that we can only go so far. Can we help them? Yes, we can help them. Are we going to get them to optimal function? No, but that's not their goal for themselves, right? So we also have to meet our patients where they're at. And I want to keep that in mind because not everybody wants a release, even if they understand the benefits that may come from it. Um, so hopefully, hopefully this is helpful. And hopefully you can share this with somebody who is on the fence or confused or feels like, does every tongue tie need to be released? Like that is the infamous question. The answer is no. Um, but really there's a lot that goes into determining the answer for each individual patient. So hope this was helpful. I look forward to chatting with you all next week. This is Hallie signing off. Real quick, if you're listening to this and you're a SLP and OT and RDH or DDS, and you're thinking you want more training in the myofunctional therapy space, determining what's needed for pre-op and post 
post-op therapy, therapeutic intervention, um, as well as just that whole knowledge base of OMDs and what to do with tongue ties and when to release and all that fun stuff, jump into themyomethod.com with us, um, which will currently give you three months free access to themyomembership.com. And you're going to find a world of 23 hours full of information um, to help you on your journey to better helping your patients. So themyomethod.com is where it's at. And I hope to see you in there. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 